Welcome to the Macrofab uh, Engineering Podcast. I am your guest, Chris Carter. And we're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 244. Chris Carter is the owner of Mercury Inc., a design consulting firm with expertise in electrical, mechanical, software, and firmware development. Thank you so much, Chris, for coming onto our podcast. Yeah. So, uh, why don't you give us a quick little rundown of, of Mer- Mercury, and then we'll get into the topic that we're going for. Yeah, no problem. Or and about you. Okay, I can I can do both. So the company Mercury Incorporated, um, primarily uh, we do uh, you know electrical, mechanical, and software engineering. Yeah. So um, we uh, what what we really do is we slide into a company where they need us. So we offer staff augmentation, we offer basic consulting. But but a problem comes up, they call us and say they want to make this product, or they call us and say we've made this product and we just need to make this mod. You know whatever it is they need, we slide the right people into their team and and either design it for them or you know, fix their problems, manufacture it, make the little parts. So we've had, we've had customers where we just do a quick wire mod and turn their board. And we've had some that literally come to us with a napkin with an idea they wrote down during lunch on. And we take it from concept to completion, box build, all the way out the door to shipping and, and distribution. Um, so that is essentially what the, co- the company does. Um, me personally, a little bit of background in history, I guess, um, when I was really young, my aunt called me and asked uh, if I could fix her VCR. I told her no, but but then she's like, well, I heard you were good with electronics. So I asked her, I just clarified, Are you, is it broken? Right? Like, I can't make it worse, right? And she told me no. So I tore the thing apart. You just had to set the time on Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Actually, what it was is she had eaten one of her tapes, right? So I had to reset the time and pull the tape out of it. Um, but I, I, when I dove in there, I saw this green, shiny thing with crap plugged into it everywhere and silver, shiny stuff. And it seemed like there would be a reason why each of those components were there and, and what was going on behind it. And those little like roadways between it had to mean something. And so I just kind of got interested in that stuff. And from that day on, I took anything that, that came across me apart. If, if I got something in my hands, I, I just tore it apart and looked into it. And I you know, just kind of reverse, um, kind of understood whatever was going inside of it. And that carried on until I got out of high school and um, people just started asking me questions. Like um, I actually went and got a database job uh, doing software development and database administration at a company called Malaluka uh, in the town that I live in. And um, they just kept asking if I could do stuff like, hey, Chris, we want you to do this. Okay, I would jump in and do that thing. And it, it just worked out well for me. And then I would start getting external calls. I was on Rinnacoder for a really long time and people would call and, um, you know, I would just tell them if I felt like I could do it, I would do it. Even if I lost money, I would I would accomplish that thing. And, uh, you know, it, it built up a lot of experience. I made a lot of mistakes and um, all of those mistakes are essentially how I, uh, I guess, give good answers now. Right. I've screwed up a whole bunch of stuff. So now I don't screw up people's stuff anymore. <laughs> yeah. Just out of curiosity, do you think do you think that makes um, an engineer or a designer or somebody who works in a field like yours? Do you think that makes that's almost required, should I say? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think I think there's two parts of it that's required. The first part is to make the mistakes, um, right, and and go through that and learn what. I mean, I, I don't know that I always call them a mistake. Sometimes I purposely break stuff, right, drive it to failure to see what causes it to fail and make a better solution. But the second part of it is realizing that your mistakes aren't mistakes, right? Like they are. Um, learning opportunities, schooling opportunities. And, and if you approach it from that perspective, it's not like, dang it, I just screwed up. It's like, you know, great. I, I can prevent that from happening to the next customer down the line or to my next, you know, side project I'm working on. For sure. So, uh, so did you, uh, did you go to college for any of this? Uh, well, yeah, no. So I, I, I did, register and go to the university for one semester. And I have a few credits from when I was in high school, like AP classes. Um, but, uh, you know, in, in retrospect, I did not go to college um, and, and become an engineer. Uh, I actually couldn't figure it out, couldn't work out how college kind of operated. It just like blew me away and I couldn't, I couldn't connect all the dots and get what I needed done. And so I kind of just left and started doing what I said, right? Like answering people's questions. If I thought I could do it, I would take care of it. And it, it just got more and more involved and deeper and deeper the questions that people would answer me until finally, you know, somebody asked me, can I, can I do firmware? And I was like, yeah, I, I can do firmware. And I, and I went and did his firmware. And then, you know, the firmware was hooked to IO pins. So I needed to toggle some IO pins that were no longer available or not on the schematic. So I had to modify a schematic. So, 
you know, I download Eagle and start modifying the schematic and just kind of, kind of grew my own chops that way. So I'm sure you're going to come, you're definitely going to come across some technical jargon that is not real. I'm, I make up words cause I don't know what the technical word is. <laughs> I mean, that's how the technical word came about. Right. Yeah. Just make it up. Cause it sounds fancy, right? <laughs> exactly. So that's, that's my schooling background. I mean, I do spend a lot of time, you know, reading and going to, um, you know, uh, uh, I love CES, uh, you know, any of those sort of things, especially embedded versions, um, any sort of, you know, basically Comic-Cons for engineers, I, I try to get to. And so it's not like I don't know how to learn. It's just that organization of college and that sort of thing. And then when kind of looking back in retrospect, I'm super glad I don't have like a ridiculous amount of student loans to overcome. Um, but in the same same vein, it took me a long time to get to a point where um, I would be uh, valuable, I guess, to a company, right? It took me a lot longer to get to a point where I could actually engineer something. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the piece of paper does mean things to certain people, uh, but it, in a lot of ways, it's arbitrary. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the document, right. It always gets your, it gets your foot in the door and it'll probably set your base pay. But if you want to keep your job, you need experience, um, and, and that sort of thing. And you just, I mean, you don't get experience in school, you get some basic education, you know, and, and some technical detail. But really what it boils down to, to me, is, is the, the, the engineers that come out of school tend to not have any applied application of their knowledge, right? They don't know how to apply it. And so I spend a lot of time with the engineers that come in, especially right out of college in our company, um, just helping them build that experience of failure so that they, um, you know, can operate in the real worlds with our customers because it's not turning in an assignment, right? They're not turning in an assignment and maybe getting a C or a D or a B. Like this is the customer's livelihood. This is how they make money. And so it takes a little while to build that, you know, kind of up from, from some people. Uh, but, you know, aged people who have, who have worked in the industry for longer tend to be, they tend to slide in a little bit quicker. And so that's why, you know, at first I was really hesitant and was worried about telling people that I hadn't been to school or whatever. But, um, after I've done a job with them and, and worked with them, it, it, they can start to see that experience is way more valuable than whether or not, you know, I have a master's degree or a bachelor's degree or a PhD in something you can never use or whatever. I, I wonder how popular a class that would be if it was like engineering failures, but like you build <laughs> stuff, but you have to get an F. As long as it followed up with a second course, right? To, so you to get make the sure experience. that uh, it was indestructible on the second round or something like that, right? Yeah. It'd be called like experience of failures or something like that. Yeah. You know what? It actually, it's, it's a hard thing for people to admit, you know, if you screwed something up bad, um, every, like a lot of companies and businesses will really jump down your throat and, and, you know, hold you to it. But I, I try to take a different approach with our employees and, and make them feel comfortable with their mistakes. I mean, to a degree, right? Like I don't want them running around making the same mistakes over and over, but I know every time they make a mistake, it's going to, it's going to pay back dividends later on. Yeah, because it sucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they'll they'll remember it, right? They'll remember that mistake and avoid it in the future. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But but if I tell them like, hey, don't do this, I get like fifty questions. Why, right? Like, oh, well, what about this? Well, I wanted to do it anyway. Well, I think that's the right way to do it. School taught me, and uh, really, you know, nothing, nothing, nothing says test your your battery charger before you plug it into a battery like a a building on fire, right? You forgot to put an overcharge shut off on your, on your battery charger and you come back in and you know, the whole building is smoking, uh, that I'll never forget right now. When people send me a battery charger, I test that thing before I just plug it in and leave it for the night. You Wait, know, don't, don't, tell, don't tell me you came to a smoke, uh, smoking building. Oh yeah. Yeah. I still have the chair. So it didn't, it didn't actually burn the building down, but I had a guy submit a bolt, a battery charger for me. He told every, told me everything was done and good. Just solder it up and, and give it a test. And I did solder it up and gave it a test. And it was actually a multi cell charger. So it had, it had four lithium polymer battery cells stacked on top of each other. And what ended up happening was there was no overcharge protection. So the top battery got hot, then it got a little too hot and the second battery melted. And when it melted, it melted through to the second and first battery. And when it hit the first battery, it blew up. It blew molten copper and lithium all over the room. And, and uh, occasionally it was in our build lab. So occasionally I've got all these little like component drawers, right? That you can open up. I'll go back in and open a component drawer and smoke will come out. Even still, it's like 15 years ago when I set that thing off. <laughs> 
<laughs> my, my wife hates me. I've got I've got the chair that, that wow. took the brunt of the damage um, sitting in the server room, and she is pissed that I won't throw it away. It's like it's like a it's like remember to test the stuff people send you. <laughs> Don't just walk off and assume it'll work. I, I that would be amazing if you were sitting on that chair right now. I, I it's not comfortable. It's not a comfortable chair. <laughs> that's why I was in the build lab in the first place. Oh, that's great. I, I guess that's a hell of an intro. Yeah, I guess I got a little out of control there. So anyway. <laughs> no, no, it's great. That's fantastic. Um, so I guess we can move on to uh, the main topic that we were going to get into today, which was uh, DFM for PCB assemblies. Yeah, I think it's a little bit more than DFM, but we'll just call it that. We'll call yeah. it that, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, our, and I think this is going to be a multiple part podcast too, because we have like like 10 things on this list and we're probably going to scratch two of them this episode. So we'll definitely have to have Chris back on cool. later, but the first one is industrial design. So what does that mean to you, Chris? So to, to me and, and to the, you know, the handful of customers who brought me industrial design, think I can make product. Um, industrial design is kind of, um, it's not exactly what it sounds like at first, uh, first I, I would have thought industrial design meant hardware or mechanical engineering, but it turns out industrial design is really just like, um, art, right? So, so like somebody draws up your part, your, your product, the, the 3d printer you're going to make or whatever. And, um, the, the funny thing about it is when they draw those up, it's usually an artist that does it, not a CAD designer. And so what we end up with is a wire mesh of maybe five or six lines that has an image wrapped around that, that mesh. And, and they'll come to us and say, we'd like to build this product. Look how great it looks. And there's no dimension. There's no size there's no material there's just like some great looking art right don't get me wrong industrial design is my least favorite thing because i can't do it but it it's the most important part from a customer perspective right what you're selling to your end customer they have to love how it feels touch tech tactile all that sort of stuff but but industrial design is not sufficient to fabricate a, a, a product or a part. If you bring industrial design to, um, to a manufacturing party, what you're going to end up with is a list of contacts that can fab each component, the plastics, the, the electrical, the mechanical, and all that sort of stuff. Um, you really need to take it that one step further and go into actual mechanical design and mechanical engineering and electrical engineering if your product calls for it. You, you know, I, I think it's funny because it's it's very parallel to the classic uh, idea of you got architects and civil engineers where yeah. an architect draws up something, gives it to a civil engineer, and they're just like, dear God, how do I make this? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly how I look at industrial design, right? Is it looks right on the computer screen, but it's not fabricatable. For sure. So how do you fix that? Uh, so again, I think it comes back to customer engagement. So I have had a couple of customers bring me their industrial files and ask me to manufacture them. And it turns out that that's a human issue. They didn't realize that they had and needed the, the build files. And so at that point, it's just a matter of navigating back to the engineers and, and finding what we need to fabricate. Um, and then working with that group to, to you know get what actually um, needs to happen to produce their art. Um, I have had a few people come to me with those wire meshes and, and ask to build it. And um, to be honest, those engagements are more expensive in terms of like the overall cost of an engagement. But in terms of that customer's um, you know, experience and, and cost from India, from industrial design to completion, right? Shipping to the customer. It's, it's always been my opinion that you, you get a better result if you use one engineering group um, that is capable of doing mechanical, electrical, industrial is less important, but industrial, if they can do it, and then your final assembly, right? DFM and, and manufacturer. Um, and what you get if you, if you can find a single consolidated group is you don't spend a lot of time with different engineering groups and meetings transferring ideas and knowledge, um, you get the opportunity to have fewer engineers uh, have a deeper understanding of your product. And the more they, they understand, the, the deeper in they can get. Um, you know, I was, I, I was chatting about an alternative product we were building a while ago, and we um, actually deployed into firmware in a little IoT tag code that made our database more performant, right? Like, we wouldn't have been able to do that if we'd outsourced electrical engineering and said, make the IoT device. Um, and then we'd outsource database administration and design and then outsource software development. Um, like our guys are in-house, in-house. We sit down and have that conversation, explain the whole product to everybody. And then, you know, the DB guy says, well, 
that's going to slow us down. So yeah, I mean, I can I can build and calculate my timestamp so it comes across in time that SQL needs, and I don't have to waste time processing some arbitrary time format to get it into the database. My electronics provided it in that way. So I, I got major scalability and didn't have to bother with ETL and crunching just by taking one step backwards. And I think that those are the two most common ways I solve industrial design problem. Obviously, there's the ones that, that come to us with industrial design and then hear that they have to actually design their product and, and move on, right? The quote's too high or the duration takes too long. But those are the, the two the two real solutions are to help them design their files or to find the dude who created the originals. That being said, do you, uh, do you prefer if you kind of get uh, control or if, if you get more control over things, is that what you usually try to steer for? Yeah, it, it actually, it depends on why I picked up the project. Um, are you familiar with the con Marie method? So she's a girl who like teaches you how to clean your house. Mm, right, oh, that, yeah. is that the, um, only keep things that make you happy. Yeah, is that the yeah, motto? yeah, yeah, yeah. You, right? you have to ask every article of clothing if you're happy about it. Yeah, so you, you hold you like you. Yeah, so we pick up this roll of tape, right, and hold it to our hearts and ask, "Does this tape make me happy?" If it doesn't, you toss it. Um, I pick customers that way. So when a customer calls and asks I, if I like their product or or their concept or something, just like strikes me as like, oh, I should do this. Uh, I do that project. I don't usually calculate or make a, a plan or be like, oh, I'll only work on this if we can make this amount of money this quarter. Um, I'm I'm really more interested in having fun at work, and so I pick jobs that I think will be interesting. Um, so. That is one way that that I can filter out the industrial, you know, things that I'm that I'm not really interested in working on. But in terms of, it's got to be some really good art. <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> right. But in in terms of like, um, the, you know, the original question and and um, which ones do I prefer? If I just need something to like take my brain off of of you know the the current project I'm working on, I, I really like I like projects that I don't have a lot of say in, right? Because they're fixed in. They, they've basically told you what to do and now it's just my it's just a matter of math to get the thing to do it that way um if i'm really looking to like feel fulfilled in the day or the week or whatever i prefer the ones that drop an industrial design on you and are like well i don't understand why you can't just make that from that file because then like i really have to go into it and and decide like should i use machine screws or should i use you know wood screws or should i use this electrical component or um this schematic layout or solid state relays or should i use a mechanical and like right i get to make those decisions but if i'm if i'm kind of overwhelmed or 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 feeling like I'm behind I I rather have an industrial like something that I don't have control over because then it's not my responsibility right to make sure the thing works I'm just, time scales not on you either yeah I mean that takes the pressure off right if, if I can take the pressure off and maybe it boils down to that but I don't think so I actually like sometimes I just need to unwind my mind and and do a dumb task you know start to finish and sometimes I actually just want to sit down and I, I guess for lack of a better term, make the world better, right? Simplify a design, minimize cost, uh, help a customer out, whatever the case may be. So I, I don't have a single answer for you. I think yeah, that's going to be the answer to yeah, most of these questions. Yeah, that's the trouble is like it's definitely scope related and project related, but generally speaking, there's usually three paths. No, uh, expensive and cheap, right? <laughs> Those are the three paths you can go down. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I mean, so how do you guys feel about my de my definition of industrial design? Is is that pretty spot on? I, I kind of I heard it once and then I made that definition up. <laughs> I'm, no, that, that, I think that's pretty close. I, I I'm curious because I've I've certainly I've tossed it around a bunch and I've heard it a bunch, but I I don't think that I've ever seen like an official definition of industrial design i think it's just this nebulous term that people throw around and it's just like oh it's kind of big picture in a way yeah you know the first time i heard it was actually from a mechanical engineer so the mechanical engineer that had built this product um was going into version two of the product and he called me aside and was like hey look this is going into industrial design when it comes back we'll send you the mock-ups and I said something stupid thinking he meant it was like their CAD files. And he's like, no, 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 they won't come back with CAD files. This is just like the art, the, the original design. And and that's where I kind of formulated my whole opinion from was this one dude like correcting me. So uh, that's that's probably that's probably a little bit like I've, I've read into it a bit. But you're right. I, I've, I've never seen it written down like a formal degree in industrial design or anything like that. 
Yeah, I, I view industrial design is is how the device interacts with the rest of the world. So either in humans interacting with it or it interacting with other devices or like how it plugs in. But like what goes on on the inside doesn't matter. It's black box. Yeah, yeah, I can see it that way. Like basically a visual theory of operation, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, let, let me let me rock your definitions real quick and and give okay. you give you the official uh, definition from Wikipedia. Yeah, but I wrote that. <laughs> just, just kidding, just kidding. Go, go ahead, go ahead. Industrial design is a process of design applied to products that are to be manufactured through techniques of mass production. So, in in many ways, it it doesn't necessarily have to, according to this definition, doesn't have to do with the actual design of the uh the the product's inner workings it this definition is more about how it gets mass produced interesting so really then it would be more like what what we just talked about would be more like a mock-up right like a an art mock-up and industrial design is kind of bleeds over into dfm i, I mean that by that definition i mean so says Heskett in 1980 <laughs> <laughs> that's what that source is from oh yeah way up to date right sure sure yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wikipedia, it's the source of all information. I was close. I was close enough, right, for the for the purposes here. I think yeah. in, in general, like whenever I hear industrial design, I think my mind leans a little bit more towards system design, mm -hmm. where instead of the part that I'm good at, I'm thinking about yeah. all the parts. Uh, so it might be, oh, I have to contact my ME or my firmware guy or even the artist who, you know, put text on a on a cylinder yeah. and said make it you know yeah no that could be uh, i guess i and it really too it depends i think if you asked what is industrial design to a different group of dudes uh you probably get a more like concise or at least a different answer i think it's contextually based right where, where i spend a lot of time answering dfm questions and things like that i tend to think of industrial design as a step one um you know not not a real engineer but just somebody who's gonna start the process rolling probably a little unfair sorry all you industrial designers out there you guys do good work you start the ball rolling get the juices flowing i apologize <laughs> well and 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 so for for dfm i think dfm in so many ways uh is is reliant uh, upon somebody who's done the job before it's dfm is basically just understanding that somebody has requirements for the task that they're doing and trying to compile all those in one place and apply them to whatever you're designing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So did we define DFM? Maybe we should have defined that before we designed defined industrial. We can do it right now. Yeah, sure. 24 minutes into the podcast. <laughs> 24 minutes in. Well, maybe you should just check with Wikipedia first. Design for manufacture, right? So for to me, design for manufacture takes an existing product, usually an existing product, and modifies the steps that it goes through so that um, it can be manufactured in an auto or semi-automatic fashion. That's how I that's how I look at DFM. Is um, if you can take that back into the industrial design and into the mechanical design, you should at all at all costs. Um, and, and try and plan your design around not needing to build those efficiencies in later. But that's essentially what I consider it to be. No, no disagreements. I okay. would 100% agree. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's concise. That's <laughs> good. Yeah. And speaking of basically that, that definition of DFM, the next topic, special assembly. Yeah. Is what you should be avoiting. Yeah. yeah breaking the DFM. <laughs> it breaks DFM. Yep. So if you're mechanical or you're electrical, right? Like, avoid uh, avoid special assembly like parker said right like uh, a good a good electrical example would be um board to wire right use a connector don't use soldered wires directly to the board that'll almost always be a manual process um or at least an uh, an extra machine that needs to be brought into the to the mix and then you know mechanical you could talk about things like screw bosses versus snap fit you know, um, if you need screws, that's one thing. But if you don't need them, don't put screws in the system because somebody or something has to turn them and that takes time. And it doesn't sound like a lot until you turn, you know, 200 million screws and get charged one penny for each of them. Uh, it, it adds up definitely in industrial or in, in DFM. Um, and, and so, yeah, I guess that's that's definitely some of the special assemblies that I've come across 
uh, board edge connectors, like roll your own board edge. Uh, I'm thinking like Nintendo cartridge style sockets, right? Uh, that people just want to cheapen up one half of it and they make their own PCBs. The leads, especially if they're not designed for that many insertions or removal, it's fine for one time, especially if you're going to solder it or tin coat it or something. But multiple insertions, uh, buy something. Buy, buy a connector that costs you more than it will cost you to repair it. Or cost you less. Sorry, cost you less than it costs to repair it. <laughs> or troubleshooter DFM. Special assembly. You know, you, the other things that, that can go under special assembly would be things like plan for um, the ability to make contact to your root firmware or root device from outside. So whether that's over the air firmware updates on a Bluetooth unit or a special connector or a bootloader on a USB device or a serial device or something like that, like you can avoid special assembly by designing your jack or connector or um, programming port directly into the enclosure and PCB. Um, you know, take take a few steps backwards before you take that step forward and design the circuit board and think about where that circuit board is going to go and what you're going to need to do to it to make it function. And then seriously, think about what's... So think about the day when you get 600 of them back and you have to evaluate all of the 600 for some unknown bug. That's, that's really how you should be like planning and designing um, ahead of time. Or, or your... Or, um... You get them and you have to take them all apart to reprogram. Yeah, so that's another reason to not put screws in is if you're the one that has to take them apart to update the firmware or to program them because because they didn't come out of the factory programmed. Yeah, that, I mean, that bleeds into DFM in general, but special assembly, um, you know, you can... So so this is counterintuitive to the, to the topic, right? I just said avoid special assembly. But in some cases, a special assembly process may be less costly than like uh, RMA process. You know, I think another thing that uh, can be added to that is uh, if you look at your device as you're designing it, uh, ask yourself the question, does this require a tool that just doesn't that, you know, doesn't exist at, at the manufacturing facility? Or does this require a tool that you have to design and provide to the facility? Like, Lead get warming. rid of that. Like, you get like, don't do those. Or if you have to do them, have a very good reason. Right. For and be, and be prepared. Custom lead forming is right up there for yeah. that. Yeah. For yeah. thermal parts. Or 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 something something like exactly like you were saying, Chris, with uh, uh you know, connections of some sort. If 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 a connector uh, if if just uh, sourcing a connector and putting that on your board fixes the need to have a special jig for you to put boards down and wire them together in a special way, that is superior almost all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, Steven, you built that like last week. Uh oh my my thing your your potentiometer board yeah yeah absolutely yeah I I got rid of seven cable assemblies yeah. and dropped it down to two by just going with special connectors and an extra PCB which is significantly cheaper yeah well and that's something too like when you're talking about special assembly so maybe you have like a wire to wire board interface right if if that's required and you can't use a jumper at least use breakaway cables so so we got into this complicated build with pneumatics and electronics and routing the wires around everything without emi and all that sort of stuff and then the machine moves right pneumatics um and you know it turned out that having a connector that could break away could be disconnected from the board or, or disassembled in the center of the of the cable allowed us to service the machine and prototype on it so what we were doing before i showed up was desoldering the thing to get it out of the chassis to work on it and enhance it then soldering it back into the chassis so so there's there i don't want to say don't do special assemblies right there's a balancing act between when to use it and in, in dev and beta and prototype i tend to use them more because I'm personally can deal with it. Right. And I can rapid prototype. But when you get into production, what you're really trying to think about is how can I get this, this, this device from start to finish on the assembly line off that line as fast as possible with as few steps and few costs as possible. And um, so, so it's, it's more about, a, a, about balance than it is about not doing it. And I think that leads back into the experience and the things, but there are some hard and fast rules. If it takes a special tool, like avoid it unless you can't. You know, that's that's a pretty good one. Mm -hmm.
I hadn't thought about that. I hadn't thought about the tooling side of things because usually what I end up doing is pointing out that a tool is being used and not actually turning it, right? And then we then we design it out. So I hadn't actually thought about the tool itself being something you should avoid, but that's actually a fantastic catch. Well, and and uh, tools are not uh, necessarily an issue. Uh, like if if you're getting something done at say an electronics manufacturer, you can expect that you could call out a number two screwdriver and there's a really high yeah. likelihood they'll have that right but some weird like i don't know star-shaped uh, you know uh, n driver yeah you're gonna provide that and you're gonna provide that plus extras for when they lose them or yep. they break or whatever and yep. just be prepared for that yep, that's know? absolutely right they the tools will disappear uh for sure and you know the the to be fair tooling can extend beyond uh you know, a pair of channel locks or, or uh, flush cuts or something like that. A programming jig is a tool. So if you can, if you can avoid the need for a programming jig, um, do it. So one really good way of doing that is reading your spec sheet. Like read the spec sheet at least on the ARM controller or the processor you're using, because that dude almost certainly has a UART bootloader or an I squared C bootloader or a USB one or both or all three. And if you can, if you can, batch in on a pre-existing thing. You don't need JTAG hardware. You don't need, need anything like that. And I'm sure people would argue with the JTAG side of things. It's faster. Yeah, but not if you do it right. I mean, you can do a UART programming just as fast as you can do a JTAG without all the overhead. Well, and, and every time I've messed with JTAG in production environments, those 10-pin little tiny connectors get destroyed so quickly. Yeah, well, and they always want 50 panels on the, or 50 units on the panel, right? And you're supposed to, like, jam 10, those 10-pin 10 connectors in 50 spots on a little tight deal, and then you've got, like, cable routing. The jigs begin to get really complicated, but you can multiplex a UART line all day long. Right, right. Uh, going back to what you were saying earlier, where thinking about the life cycle of your product in terms of like assembling it and then out the door is combining that with what you said even earlier before that, which is thinking of the entire life cycle of the customer using it in RMAs yeah. and how you handling that um, in your special assembly. If you're, if you're, um, if you can afford, basically if someone, if one of these things breaks and you can just throw it in the trash can and give the customer a new one, then yeah, you don't have to worry about ever taking it apart. But that's there's only a few companies out there that do that. You know what though? There's something that people don't usually think about. So so you fine. Let's put a battery in there. Let's put a primary battery in, and we'll just toss it when it's done and make this a a reusable product or a, a repurchasable product, right? That's our our business model. Okay, that's awesome and great until some city calls you up and is like, dude, we have two hundred thousand of these in our landfill full of batteries. Come get them. Then, right, you need to think a little bit ahead of like, so it's not just your product life cycle, it's its death as well. Can it be recycled? Should it be recycled? Should it, should it even like, should we have put a rechargeable lithium polymer battery into a throwaway device? Or should we pick some other way of powering it? Or should we not made it throw away in the first place? So there are some worldly things that can come back and really bite you in the ass from a corporate perspective. You, you don't want to be, you know, a fortune 100, $5 billion, uh, you know, a year company that, that the EPA finds, you know, all your shit in a landmine somewhere. And is like, that's not, that's not it. That's not the spot for disposing that, right? You'll pay the fines and the recovery. And then you'll wish you hadn't put, you know, you hadn't welded the thing shut or whatever the case may be. <laughs> you know, that's, that's something that, that is not thought about very often uh, is, uh, let me see, DFR or DFS, which is divide, designed for repair or designed for serviceability. Yeah. Yeah, really, though, design for serviceability actually is probably a, a, a more important thing to talk about when you're talking about RMAs, because if you design your product in a way that requires an RMA, that is way more expensive than, well, like, we so blend that into special assembly. If you're going to get more RMAs than, you, than your cost for having a breakaway cable so they can send you back the front panel instead of your whole washing machine, right? Like mm -hmm. something like that. You, you definitely there's there's still some hard and fast rules that you can kind of focus on, but there may be a good reason to break away from from some of those. If you look at the baby stage of your product, the prototyping, the completion and the, the consumer usage and then the returns and the final destruction of the product. And if you're responsible for it, um, certainly countries, if, you, if you're going to be international, this this scope 
gets a little larger, right? Because Europe has different destruction processes than we do here based on the chemicals that are, that are in the um, plastics, uh, some semiconductors, tons of batteries. Everybody has different rules about disposal of batteries. They're all generally the same, but you know, destruction in Europe is is different than than destruction of primary cells here in the states. And thinking about all that stuff saves you these headaches later on down the road. Well, even that, if you have to recover or dispose of the battery, uh, it it helps it helps to design something where you can open it up and get to it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that that is true. You know, like if you want to make a hermetic seal, overmold, um, hot plate weld gaskets and screw bo- you know screw bosses and things like that can work too um but if, if you make the decision to overmold you only have one decision to get it out there's only cut that out right if you hot plate weld it's still kind of the same you can use a laser and cut it out but if you put screw bosses in and and your primary concern is serviceability and recyclability if if your company prioritizes you know recycling then put screw bosses in because screw bosses will always make things easier to recycle i'm imagining like you turn the device over and it says hit here with hammer to recycle <laughs> and you hit it and it just explodes into all the comp- primary components. Yeah. That's some serious DFS right there. <laughs> mash, mash me. Yeah. That's a good idea. In case of recycle. <laughs> yeah. And the battery just pops out. Yeah. Batteries are. No, it's actually the funny, the funny thing is I do a lot of uh, automotive work and do a lot of, uh, retro modding of vehicles and that's actually the one thing is i think about when i'm putting stuff together and modifying things is how in like four years am i going to service this thing and also remember how i put it yeah you know what you hit it on the head there we so documentation is not really listed out here quite well but document what you did and why you did it and how the assembly process works don't just get through the first batch and and think you you're out of the weeds right keep track of it basically it works like this like if you run into a problem don't solve it like document it first and and then start your your solution and then document the solution if if you start with the documentation approach you can always come back and solve the problem later but if you don't you'll you'll have that problem every time you order oh come on that's no fun really it's almost like i've done that a couple of times maybe you you know what (laughs) steven maybe you just haven't done it enough yeah, no, yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, I want to get to the solution. You get moving. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be honest. When I'm engineering, I, I am not the documentation dude. I am, I am a bad offender. But when I'm doing, when I'm doing DFM, like the whole point of it is to find these little like nuances and loopholes and making it faster or serviceable. And um, documentation on on DFM is a little bit easier, uh, especially if the the engaging company brings a project manager, which is not always the case, but. You have someone to bu- to bug you if you if, if they have a have a PM there. or someone to translate for me, right? I rattle off a whole bunch of nonsense words and make up some stuff, and then and then they just come back and get clarity off the off the video recorder or voice recorder or whatever. <laughs> so right under documentation, you know, I mean, like change logs, absolutely keep track of where you were at, what you were doing, and and make a revision program, right? So that if you need to make a version one point oh eight six again. Like you can, you can fab it with the notes. And if it's five years ago, you can still bring it back to life and, and manufacture that thing. Um, you know, the auto industry does a pretty good job of, of documenting and leaving that sort of stuff. So it is serviceable. And so if, I mean, if you need examples, use, use the automotive industry, go buy a Chilton or, or download a Chilton manual and look at those and they'll show you how to assemble it, what the theory of operation is, why you put this in that place, why you decided on screw bosses instead of, you know, overmolding. So keep track of all that stuff because you, even if you remember it, you're going to forget it. I forget all the great ideas I had all, all the time. So, so you mean it's not just buried in an app note somewhere that they that they put somewhere deep on the website? <laughs> well, for mine are for sure. They're buried somewhere. I haven't deleted anything ever. But uh, oh man, that that design for serviceability is bringing me back to that project earlier this year, or is it last year? It was last year. Oh man, it was the it was the uh, shark. The the pool vacuum, Stephen. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so Chris, there's this. Uh, my parents' pool vacuum broke, and um, is this like little rover that's like you know, grows underwater and sucks up everything, and the motor unit stopped working. Well, in the manual, it has you know the exploded diagram and shows what the motor and what the part number is, and it says not serviceable. <laughs> and I said, hell no, it's not. 
and I unscrewed it and popped it open. And what they meant by that is that there was a seal in there that just won't go back in. <laughs> <laughs> and so that seal got replaced by about half a tube of silicone cock. <laughs> so sometimes that's sort of but hey, guess what? That. It's still working today. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I, I do the same thing. I tear into anything that I can get a hold of, but it doesn't all... I've run into that a couple of times when what they mean by not serviceable is not that you can't find the parts and do it yourself and see the scorched board and replace the component, but physically, if you disassemble this, it's it's destructive. Yeah, yeah. and that's the thing. is like it has screws, like so they, they put it together with screws. But what happens is that seal just absorbs chlorine from yeah. the water and just swells. And so you can never get that seal back into the channel that uh, it was ever supposed to go for. Yeah. Now, the thing is, they could sold a brand new seal, but they didn't. Yeah, I mean, so that's a planned obsolescence thing I was just going to bring up, right? Like if, you're, if your goal is to plan obsolescence your product or parts of your product, then you can actually just listen to this podcast in reverse, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. So I don't know, I, but it does play a role in that. Like if, if you have a goal of that for whatever reason, if that's your business model is to have some sort of planned obsolescence or version two is, is how you make your next set of money, right? Then you, you do need to kind of think about some of these things because in reality, it's not, it's not like screwing the customer over, right? What you're really doing is making a decision to not have an RMA process. You're just going to build version two and, and discount it for the customer, roll it forward or, or, you know, send them a new one without even worrying about it. So there, there is another path to serviceability and that is to just shoot them a new device. Um, I don't, I don't particularly like that path, but if you've got a good build process and you can keep your, your failure rate low, then that may be like, if you're building hammers, the failure rate is going to be reasonably low, right? So it's not a big deal. If you get a few returns, just send them a new hammer. Don't troubleshoot yeah. it. And so I think, or, or you come up with hammer 2.0. Yeah. Right. With the claw in the back or whatever, then send them that. And so, <laughs> but, but there are some, there are definitely some clear caveats to this discussion that, that I'm pigeonholing out of this discussion, right? I'm talking about the serious offenders who think that they're going to be able to manufacture something and then really need help because their product has so many manual steps that automating it would be cost prohibitive. You know, um, Real quick, back onto change logs. Something um, I was I was dealing with just a few weeks ago. Uh, so, so, so in my opinion, with, with change logs, uh, I, I, whenever I make them or or I deal with people that make them, like I feel like in so many ways, five percent of the change log is for me, and then ninety five percent is just as a CYA for me to tell everyone else what happened. Like the five percent is like, oh yeah, I need to remember what I did, but. Uh, you guys have probably run into this like the golden age of service manuals like when yeah. you'd get an old stereo or something like that and it was it was handwritten by somebody and then you turn to the last 20 pages and it was every revision they've done and it's all hand drawn like a through hole resistor with a wire that's like go to this trace and cut this one and do that and and you you're trying to fix your stereo and look at it <laughs> like oh my god i have to interpret every one of these pages to see if this happened to it like i feel like there's an art to writing a good change log such that it makes sense and uh, and that people can read it and interpret it yeah i think you know in a in a manual style situation that's important so so when i added change log here to to the list of topics right what i was originally thinking was my personal change logs for that 5%. So so what I what I do in all of my schematics when I first start one up, even if I'm just going to throw the schematic away, is my first page is always a page that I label notes. So in Eagle I do it and in, in Altium I do it like just create a notes page and then I just create a, a change log and anytime I open that file, I go into the, the note page first cuz it's first up and I type what I plan on doing in there. Why am I in this file, right? I just change an 0402 to an 0805 or whatever and then it just like if you get into that habit of of keeping track of what you're doing and why um then you won't have to remember that's really what i was talking about but yeah i hadn't thought about someone else trying to consume those notes uh you know back to the whole fire burning the building down with a battery charger uh <laughs> if if he had kept good notes and i'd read through them and he'd been like i didn't bother to do overcharge protection so make sure you shut this off after one hour of charge time i would have gone and turned it off but no notes, right? No, no detail, no nothing. And at least somebody's half-assed attempt at keeping track of what they were trying to accomplish is, is better than just having nothing. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Well, and, and, and even though you may think that you're writing something for you to read, it may be read by someone else 
you know, especially yeah. if it's a critical situation where all the units are coming back from the field. Well, then you're really hoping that you have those notes written correctly. Yeah. And, and not only that, but so, so our engagement style, um, can, can be a little bit weird, right? Where, um, we offer staff augmentation, uh, a customer can have their product fully developed and built and turned and they've made, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of units, and then they want to make a minor change. So they'll engage with a third party engineering firm like ourselves, cause they didn't bother to keep staffed. They were making their product and, um, having a little bit of context about why you removed your bypass capacitor or ignored the DC decoupling recommendation from the spec sheet, like a handful of notes for the dude who's going to take over your project, like do him a favor, right? Put a few little, don't leave all those Easter eggs just dangling around for him to find. <laughs> Easter eggs. <laughs> yeah. PCB Easter eggs, man. If you found one, you know, <laughs> for sure. So yeah, anyway, that's that's definitely it's interesting to talk to you guys because everybody's view on what a changelog is or what DFM is or what industrial design is ends up being different. And uh I, I hadn't thought about the change logs being a part of the the actual end user detail. But I know there's firmware that I've written that end users are out like in, you know, GitHub or whatever, the end users go out and read. And I definitely didn't document it well enough. Yeah. It's hard. It, it it's it's almost as much work as the actual yeah. development. Well, it is the development if you think about yeah. it. Yeah. If it's a if it's a paid important gig, I almost always pseudocode first. So my pseudocode becomes my notes in my documentation. And especially if it's a large, complicated like state machine and firmware or something like that. Um pseudocode is, is your best friend. But it's still the same statement, right? Make your notes first, then do your work. Yeah, that's actually I've been doing some code at at work. And um, I'll usually draw out or write out yeah. what I'm going to do first before I start even writing characters into that Python yeah. script, right? Is is doing that first. So that at least when I can look at it and be like, okay, it needs to do this. These are the inputs yeah. and these are the outputs. That, that's like bare minimal for for software development notes. Yeah, the one exception I would say to that is fit testing. Um, so occasionally somebody will call me up and be like, hey, I need, you know, to dissipate 250 amps, at, you know, 50 volts into, you know, this motor. And, you know, you go back and look and, and the details um, of the component and the device are not are, are not completely adequate and, and capable for it. Uh, I just lost my train of thought. Why was I going down that path? <laughs> All right. Next question. I, I, I lost, <laughs> lost my train of thought on that one. Well, I'm all, I'm interested now. You ha have you had a customer that has given you multi thousand watt motor control? Things? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, uh, like we don't have that. So uh, yes, I have one customer and this was a mechanical thing. Um, there is a design for like, it, it's planned obsolescence, but it's in a really stupid location. So power substations that will be distributed around your city, right? They have these uh, mechanical arms that can be pulled down and, and disconnect the high voltage lines, right? But there's a, a um, stepper motor that is attached to it that actually does the articulation of that arm through a neoprene washer that's designed to fracture after three or four cycles like iterations of, of opening and closing. I, I don't know why they did that. I don't know if it's on purpose, so they have to touch that, or if it was just like somebody just shoehorned the neoprene washer into that thing or what the heck was. But we we printed out um, using a bunch of different, we've got a Formlabs 3D printer here. So we went through a lot of their different high temp and, and industrial resins and printed it in like five or six different ways and um, rebuilt the gearing mechanism inside these industrial arms. And they're, they're using them in production now um, to basically save their servicing. So when, when they get a failed part, the substation still sends them in the gearbox. And what they do is drop in the new fixture and replacement and send it back out. And then they never get them back again. They're starting to get RMA calls where they're wondering why their parts haven't broken yet, rather than actually asking to send it back in and what we're going to do about it. They'll call up and be like, Hey, shouldn't, shouldn't we have sent you like 10 by now? <laughs> and the, I so, suppose that's a good problem. Yeah, so that was more on the mechanical end, but yeah, there occasionally you get you get some crazy some crazy requests like that. 
the mechanical ones tend to be more weird than the electrical ones. Um, like we've got, we've got some, some really weird requests for like bone cutters, crazy shapes that like go into your shoulder and like spread the skin as they're drilling in and then can like clean out the cavity to do a shoulder replacement. And the designs are like elegant. It's really cool to see how they make those bits fold into this little tiny incision that would go into your thing and then spread out like an umbrella and cut you to bits and then fold back in and come out. Really, really cool stuff on the mechanical side. Crazy. Gross. Yeah, gross and crazy. (laughs) I want to talk more about neoprene washers fracturing. Neoprene washers (laughs) fracturing is less disgusting. Yes. Yeah. It is interesting that that would have been designed. That must have been a design oversight or something. Well, you'd think that, but I mean, they're using them everywhere and on like a two to three cycle thing, like across the country, they're breaking all the time. So I don't know if it was like, forces them to plan maintenance and and gets them in and what maybe it's for carbon contact clean off or something are we could be or we or we're doing you know government contract conspiracies i was just about to say potential nefarious uh action yeah well okay now so i'm gonna have to process that i had i don't usually on the electrical i I go pretty crazy on the conspiracy theory, theory side but um i'd never thought about it in our field so now, now I'm going to have to actually put some thought behind that. I mean, so tr- if, if on- you design something to break the electrical grid or to break regularly on the electrical grid, it will guaranteed sell. <laughs> like, it just, you're guaranteed. Like, that's not something they're going to let, you know, sit around. Well, now I'm going to have to start watching my back, make sure I don't get, like, sniped on the way home for fixing the problem. <laughs> <laughs> you got you to gotta find what senator is uh, in that yeah. district. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> What senator did you just make really angry? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. Huh? Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Now, now I'm sitting here wondering if there was an actual design reason. See if they if they put the notes down, then we would have known why they why they purposely made that break. Exactly. Well, because neoprene's very good at you know water resistance and and uh, Sl- slippery, right? And, yeah. and keeping moisture out. Yeah. So it's, and vibration stuff. So it's like why. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it it should have it should have been fine. I mean, they just needed to make the plastic like a tiny bit harder. But basically, when like that solenoid kicks over, when the actuator moves, it reaches over and slams against it, and that's why they're shattering, they're fracturing. Is it's actually like a very fast motion to kick that arm and pick it up and move it. Um, and I just can't imagine why they wouldn't have. I mean, they knew that that impact would happen. It, it has to have been planned. That's all. That's all I could figure out is that some guy was just like. I'm going to screw these guys over. I'm going to get a second. I'm going to get a second turn on this piece on this board. <laughs> no, that's actually, no, that's, or it's, or it's the same company who sells them also services. Them. Yeah, that could be. I actually don't know this. And they were also the designer. I don't know the servicer. So they're saying, yeah. yeah, you know, these are big industrial things. So if, you know, you have to service them after three or four uses, that's normal in quotes. <laughs> Intolerance, right? Yes. That's, it's specified to do that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. All right, want to wrap up this episode? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast, and I was your guest, Chris Carter, and we're your host, Parker Dillman and Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thanks, guys. And we'll have uh, Chris Carter back on in the next couple weeks.